Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past couple of months, looking at the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told, and what they show us about who he is and what he offers us in life with him. And so this morning we are, uh, we've been looking at the parables in the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 15 this morning, if you would turn that way. And if you would, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. We come this morning to uh, the first part of Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend two weeks in Luke 15. It's this remarkable uh, and well-known set of stories that Jesus told, where Luke and his telling of the story and Jesus really gets down to the heart of the gospel, the heart of Jesus's rescuing and redeeming work. Jesus tells us uh, three stories that we're going to look at over two weeks, a story of a, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the next week of of a lost son. The setting that Luke gives us, he tells us that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. You know, and even if you just look at the parables, if you just look at the stories that we've looked at together over the past few weeks, it's easy to see why, right? That those who are notoriously sinful, those who are outcasts in society would be flocking to Jesus in droves. Remember last week we learned that Jesus tells us that life with God is like this banquet. And those invited to the banquet aren't the well-to-do and moral and upright, but it's the, the sinners, it's the lame, it's the beggars, it's all those who he gathers in. Right, we looked at earlier when Jesus told us the story of the Good Samaritan, we looked at he is like this neighbor who comes and cares for the downtrodden, cares for those who are broken and wounded by life in this world. And so Jesus teaching this way, Jesus acting this way, Jesus reaching out in love towards these people. Of course they flocked to him in droves. Of course they were crowding out uh, around Jesus, all of the respectable and well-to-do people uh, that wanted to be his acquaintances. And so while the tax collectors and the sinners gather near to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. I love that word, grumbled. 
You know, if you're reading your Bible and you come across the word grumbled, it's never a good thing. It's ne nobody ever righteously grumbles. Nobody's ever justified in their grumbling, right? We have the Israelites grumbling against Moses as he leads them out of the wilderness. Grumbling. It just, it's one of those words that sounds like what it is. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Right? I always remember that. <laughs> Make sure that stays on the, uh, the audio. Um, but it always reminds me of the two Muppets, right, that sit up in the box and just grumble, grumble, critique everything that's going around, on around them. Right? Why? Why are the Pharisees grumbling? Why are the teachers and the religious people grumbling against Jesus, right? You would think that this is what religious people want, right? That religious people want those who seem to be irreligious, those who seem to be wandering away from the fold. They want to see them come in. They want to see them come and say, oh, no, 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 we've been wrong. We should be. We should be, be faithful. We should pay attention to God. So why is it that the Pharisees, why is it that the religious leaders are constantly grumbling against this renewal, against this revival, against all of these sinners coming into Jesus. It's because the Pharisees, the Pharisees operated with a worldview, a view of the people around them. There was essentially a zero-sum game, right? A zero-sum game is a way that, uh, that mathematicians and game theorists have of talking about the world, have talking about scenarios in which for somebody to win, somebody has to lose. Right? Plus one, minus one equals zero. If you're going to have rich people, there have to be poor people. If you're going to have insiders, there have to be outsiders. If you're going to have the righteous, there have to be the unrighteous. If you're going to have good people, there have to be bad people. If you're going to have the nice neighborhoods, there have to be the terrible neighborhoods. If you're going to have the upwardly mobile, there have to be those who get left behind. Right? That the world, the world around them is a zero-sum game. And so for them to be insiders, for them to be upright, for them to be righteous, it required, by virtue of the case, for others to be unrighteous, for others to be left on the outside, for others to be ignored and left behind by God. You know, it's easy to look at that and go, you know what, that's, that's just reality. Right? That's just the way the world works. Right? We know that, that that's the way the world works, that there's... There's good people and evil people. There's wealthy people and poor people. That the world is a zero-sum game. That's not, a, that's not a, a misconstrual by the Pharisees. That's just reality. But Jesus says, no, no, not so. Not with me. Jesus came to show and to demonstrate by his life that God does not operate by a zero-sum principle with insiders and outsiders. But that Jesus comes to show God's lavish love for all people, for people who seem to be together and those who seem to be broken, for those who seem to be righteous and those who seem to be unrighteous, those who seem to be wealthy and those who seem to be poor, that Jesus came not just to proclaim but to embody God's love for all people, God's lavish, liberal love for insiders and outsiders alike. And the outsiders flocked to it, and the insiders just couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with it because they'd spent so much of their life working their way to the inside. Right? You, you spend your whole life trying to win a race and then find out that everybody gets a trophy. And you go, wait, I've been working hard at this. I've been laboring. I've been training. I've been denying myself. And yet that's what Jesus is doing here, showing them by these stories that there are no insiders and outsiders. 
and that his ministry particularly looks like God's seeking love for the outsider, God's concern to bring in those who are cast down. Thomas Merton uh, was a uh, Cistercian monk, one of the most well-known religious writers in American history. And he has this vivid scene in his uh, collection of essays called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. He tells this story where he's well into his spiritual life, having renounced the world and gone to the monastery. He was in this uh, monastery just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And to get anything, to to run errands, do anything, they had to go in uh, to the city, go into Louisville. And one day while he was going in uh, to run errands, to purchase some things from the monastery, he was standing on the corner of 4th and Walnut, there in the center of downtown, what's now uh, the corner of 4th and Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Uh, Muhammad Ali was from Louisville, and they renamed, uh, they renamed Walnut in his honor, and you can still see this corner. And here's what uh, Merton writes about this experience that he had on the corner of 4th and Walnut. He says, in Louisville, on the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all of these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. Now I realize that we are, we are all, if only, in everybody, if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if suddenly I saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that it's each one in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. See, here's a man who'd given his whole life to isolation, really, to the belief that in order to be near to God, he had to get far from his neighbors. In order to be near to God, he had to go and live a monkish existence in a cloister. And there in the center of an urban downtown, he realizes his solidarity with humanity, that he can't get away from them, that the whole time that he's been running away from his neighbors, God's been running towards them. God's been running towards them in love, seeking and saving the lost. And that's what uh, I think Jesus is after in these stories. He's trying to get the Pharisees to have this kind of epiphany, this kind of realization of this basic reality that to be human is to be lost and to be desired and sought after by God. To be human is to be lost and to be desired and sought after by God. So we're going to look at what this story tells us about who we are and about who God is. Who we are and who God is. First, who we are, it tells us that we are lost. That it's a fundamental part of the human condition is to be lost in the midst of this world. 
to have lost our way, to have wandered away from the God who made us, the God who formed us for communion with himself, that in seeking independence from him, we've all become lost. And so Jesus identifies uh, humanity with two, uh, these two stories with two items. One, a lost coin. This woman who had ten coins loses one. Sort of like a lost coin, something that has value to its owner but has gotten lost. And like a lost sheep. A shepherd has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And this sheep has great value, and so he leaves the 99 to go looking for the one. You know, one thing that if you, if you read on, uh, on the history of these things, one thing that would have struck out, stood out to those who knew something about sheep raising is that both of these items, a coin and a sheep, are both equally likely to be lost forever and unable to find their way back. Right? A sheep, a sheep is, is notoriously a dumb animal. Right? This isn't like a, a Labrador that gets out of the gate and wanders around a little while and then comes back to its home. No, once a sheep gets lost, it's only going to get more lost as it tries to find its way back. It's only going to wander further and further. A coin can do nothing in and of itself to find its way back into the wallet. Right? It's an inanimate object, stuck there, unable to rescue itself unable to bring itself back. And such is what Jesus is saying about each of us, that in our lostness, we're helpless. We're absolutely helpless. We're like a dumb sheep that wandered off and has now gotten stuck and we have no, no idea how to get our way back. Right? We don't just need directions. Right? You, could, you could throw a map at a lost sheep and it's just going to probably try to eat it. I don't know what a sheep would do with a map. Right? We don't just need guidance. We just don't need rules. We don't just need Jesus to say, hey, actually, here's the way back to the Father. We need rescue. We need somebody to take hold of us and against our better judgment, against our better ideas, bring us back. You know, this is uh, the doctrine that theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. It's the idea that we're not just a little bit broken. We, just aren't, we aren't generally well-meaning people who've made some bad mistakes have had a few bad ideas that get in the way. No, we are, we are hopelessly broken. We're hopelessly broken from our minds down to our hearts and out through our hands that every bit of us is affected by sin. You know, Western culture has been denying this idea uh, since at least the 1700s, right? When Jean Rousseau comes around and says that, you know, human beings in their natural state are basically good. Right, ever since the 1700s, we've been in this, what seems to me, a pretty stupid battle to disprove original sin, to disprove our own brokenness, to disprove that in our natural state, we're not just naturally happy, barefoot, you know, people that just want to love each other. That in our natural state, we're beastly. There's something in us that hates our neighbors. There's something in us that, that looks out for number one at all costs. You know, it seems to me that of all, the, of all the things in Christianity that are hard to believe, and there are some, right? I'm never going to be able to give you, you know, 100% airtight proof in the virgin birth or in the resurrection, right? Some of these things we take on faith. But it does seem like depravity, brokenness, is the, is the one Christian doctrine that's just empirically verifiable, right? That you've got 
take a history class, watch the news, pay attention to your own life for an hour. Right? It seems like the one thing that I can prove to you is that it's not all sunshine and rainbows in here. But that if you get to know me, that you're going to find darkness, you're going to find insatiable appetites, you're going to find jealousy and bitterness and rage, you're going to find unbelief, right? That in here, all is not well. All is not well. This is Paul's way of saying this uh, in Romans 3, is that there's no one, there's no one in the world who's, who's righteous. There's no one who seeks God. There's no lost little sheep that trot their way back into the shepherd's fold. Right? That, that even though we feel like at times we're seeking after God, that apart from God seeking after us, apart from God reaching out towards us, each one of us is hopeless. Do you know that you're lost? Are you at a point in your life where you're, you're able to admit your lostness? Right? Historically, I am not somebody who likes to admit when I'm lost. You know, you can, you can ask my family, uh, those who've been on a road trip with me. There will usually come a moment where the question's asked, Dave, do you know, do you, do you know where you're going? Right? Do you know where you are? And my first impulse, I don't want to be sexist here, but I do think guys, we, we tend to do this, right? No, I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. And then a few more turns later, there will be the sheepish, Actually, honey, if you could pull up that map just to, you know, just to see, just to make sure uh, that I'm as right as I think I am about where we are, right? Unless you're willing to admit that you're lost, unless you're willing to admit that left to yourself, you're just getting further and further away from home, you're hopeless. But when, you're, when you admit that you're lost, when you admit that you're in need of rescue, then there's real hope. Because these stories reveal something uh, about God to us. That God is a seeking God. And he sends a seeking Savior after lost people like us. That he's a God whose heart is always going out after us, even in our lostness. I love these two little stories. I love that Jesus begins this, what man of you, so which of you, if you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open and go after the one that is lost? What kind of shepherd, if he loses one of his 100 sheep, doesn't go out searching for the one? You know what kind of shepherd doesn't do that? Like a good one, right? A shepherd with a basic knowledge of how to run a small business doesn't leave 99% of his property to go after 1%. Right? A mildly competent shepherd calls this sunk cost. Says, that, you know what, it's the cost of doing business. If you're going to have sheep, sometimes one of, us, one of them is going to run off, and you know what, we'll have more. Some, one of these sheep is going to get pregnant, and we'll replace it, and it'll be fine. Right? No smart shepherd, no wise business owner with just, a, again, like a fifth-grade knowledge of economics, leaves 99% of the value of his livelihood to go chase after 1% acceptable losses. But this shepherd, God is not like those shepherds who counts up acceptable losses. He's not one that goes, oh, well, that's the cost of doing business. If you have humans, some of them, you're going to win some and lose some. 
No, he's a seeking God. He's a reckless God in his pursuit of those who wander off. He leaves the 99. He leaves the 99 to come after each and every one that wanders off. And then when he finds them, when he finds the lost sheep, he throws a party. He throws a celebration and invites his neighbors. Now listen, I've got a dog. His name is Baxter. If you leave the door open for two seconds, Baxter is gone. He's a dachshund. He's small. He runs out. He hides well. And so when I go off, when I realize Baxter's gone, when I realize he's wandered off, I go off in a huff out to get, out to get him. I'm frustrated and I'm angry. Maybe I have to get in my car and go after him. Maybe I end up having to crawl my way through my neighbor's bushes looking out for him. And to date, I've found him every time. When I find Baxter, my first impulse is not to throw Baxter a party. My first impulse is not to invite all of you to a I found Baxter party. Can you imagine getting that Evite uh, in your inbox? Great, a shepherd found a sheep. I guess we're, we're going to go to a party. Right? This is a picture of a God whose heart towards his people, a shepherd whose heart towards his sheep is so abundantly loving, so reckless in his pursuit, so lavish in his love, so joyful in his celebration that it defies convention, that it defies everything we think we know about the value of persons, that to God they are of infinite value, worthy of infinite cost, and cause for infinite joy. And then he tells a story of a woman uh, who had ten coins and lost one. Uh, it's called a, a drachma here. It's about a one day's wage. So she loses not a small sum of money, And we're told that she turns her house upside down until she finds it. We're told that she she lights a lamp which would have taken and burned costly oil to find it. She might have burnt more oil in trying to find it than it was worth. And then when she finds it, what does she do? She throws a party. She throws a, you know, I found $10 party. Albert Schweitzer, the great theologian, uh, in in his sermon on this, talks about teaching this parable in a children's class at his church. And he says that one of the kids uh, said that this woman is stupid because she spent more money looking and more money on the party than the coin was worth. Right? I found $10. Let's throw a $100 party uh, to celebrate the finding of my $10. Once again, it's a story of God's incredible, deep, celebratory love for what's lost, uh, for his people. You know, the Pharisees, uh, these people who are the problem, these people who are grumbling against Jesus, they would have identified with the idea that God celebrates, that God throws parties. But when they thought, they thought God celebrated, when the righteous succeeded, when the righteous were vindicated, and when the, when the unrighteous were punished. And so God, Jesus is saying to them, no, no. The party in heaven, the joy of the Father, is about when one lost person, when one of these people who's precious to me wanders off and comes back, when I find one of them, that's what's the cause for joy. And if you want to enter into joy, 
in union with Christ, in union with God the Father, if you want to know something of his joy, it's wrapped up in your neighbors. It's wrapped up in this seeking and finding heart of God. We're just going to look at two quick application points. Two things that happen to you when you realize the truth of these things, that you are hopelessly lost and deeply loved by a seeking God. When you realize these two things, it has, it has two things, one, one internal and one more or less external. Internally, this has profound implications for the way that you think about yourself, for your own sense of identity in this world. You know, the truth is that most of us struggle with identity, with, with self-worth. Right? There's some of us uh, who are, it's very, very hard for us to believe that we have any worth before God or others. Right? When we think about ourselves, when we think about what we've done or what's been done to us in this life, it's very, very hard for us to believe that we have worth and that we have dignity. That we're worth something before the sight of God or that we're worthy of standing eye to eye with other human beings. We struggle with having too low a sense of, of self-worth. Right? There's others of us who have far too high a sense of self-worth. Right? That when we look at those around us, we feel like, actually, we're pretty good. Actually, you know, I'm, yeah, I make mistakes, but not nearly as much as some of the people I know. Uh, yeah, I could make more money, but you know what? I've been pretty successful in what I've done. And we, we tend to have a pretty high sense of self-worth. And for the rest of us, I, I'm guessing that you're somewhat more like me, which is that you vacillate wildly between the two of those things on a daily basis. Right? That some days you're up and you feel great about yourself, you feel great about what you bring to the world, and others, other days you're down in the dumps. Right? If you, I don't know if anybody watched the, I'm sorry if there's any Georgia fans here, but did it, we're glad you're here. Every, you know, everybody needs Jesus. Um, but, uh, but if, if you watched that Tennessee-Georgia game last night, there were two game-winning touchdowns within 15 seconds of each other. Georgia threw a 50-yard uh, 50 50, uh, pass, caught for a touchdown, wild, exuberant celebration, watching 19- and 20-year-old kids just go nuts, watching grown men in the stands weep for joy, right? Just exuberant joy. Literally five seconds of game time later, Tennessee throws a 50-yard pass. And those same weeping 50-year-old men are now weeping in sadness over the loss. The same 20-year-olds who are exuberant with joy now down in the dumps. Those who are down in the dumps now lifted up with joy. And there's something, he's like, yeah, that's what it's like, <laughs> right? That's what, that, that's what life is. <laughs> it's, it's moments of these incredible wins, incredible joy. And the capacity for heartbreak just a second later. And if we look to whether we're winning or losing, to give us our sense of worth, then life is like that. We're winning, we're losing, we're up, we're down. I connect with my kids and do something right, and I feel like dad of the year. I lose my temper with them, and I feel like I should just give up. Right? I, I, I do something, I, I feel successful in my work and the, see the church growing, and then I get one email. Or I, or I give one bad sermon. And I think, oh my God, why do I, I need to go find another job. I'm terrible at this. And that's not unique to me, right? That's not just pastor dysfunction. That's, 
That's all of us, right? We have, a good, we have a good sales quarter and we're through the moon. We have a bad one and we're in the dumps. We have a relationship that's going well and we experience real intimacy and then they, they hurt us and we feel like we're trash. Right? We all can tend to ride that roller coaster of ups and downs. And you know what? If this is true, if Jesus' words are true, then you are both lost because of your own sin having made a mess of your life and deeply valued and treasured by God. Right? The the path towards a healthy self-image, it's not just kind of this bland, vanilla, eh. Like, I guess I'm I'm neither a great pastor nor a terrible pastor. I'm just, you know, I'm okay. I'm 50-50. No, it's in realizing this incredible truth that I am both incredibly sinful incredibly broken, right? If somebody tells me, Dave, I think you, I think there's a sin in your life that I think you need to know about. You're, you can be angry. You can be lazy. You can be selfish. I don't have to get down in the dumps over that. Because, yeah, you, you, know, you don't know the half of it. You don't, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know nearly how angry I am or how self-obsessed I can be or how vain I can be, right? I'm, I'm hopelessly lost apart from Christ. But you also don't know how loved I am. You don't know how treasured I am. You don't know what God did to get me back. I am deeply loved. And when you know those two things and can hold them together in the same heart, you don't have to be subject uh, to the roller coaster of wins and losses because you're lost and loved, lost and treasured. So that's the first, is that that it has a personal application. And then more broadly... This has a a corporate application for us as we think about our life together as a church and our life together in the mission of God, right? We who believe that we've been found by God, who believe that we've been lost and gathered home to God, who believe that we live in union with the living Christ, you know what the living Christ is doing right now? Seeking and saving the lost. That's what he's been doing since he had since his earthly life that's what he's doing through his death resurrection and ascension the, the the ascended resurrected jesus that sits at the right hand of god is actively involved in loving your neighbors and if you want to live in union with him if you want to experience the joy that he holds for you it means loving your neighbors it means living in union with the seeking heart of christ that's going out always going out it means not, we're, you know, we're not likely to try to run off and become monks and nuns and live in a cloister like Thomas Merton did. But we're just as likely to believe that life with God is about walling ourselves off, about seeking the 99 and, and, and letting the one, you know, hoping they find their way back, hoping the best, hoping they find their way back to church. But we follow the Christ who always is leaving the 99 to go after the one. We want to be a church that treasures all of our neighbors, that thinks not just in terms of how do we keep the 99 content, but how are we always looking out to go after the one, go after the one who's slipping through the cracks, go after the one that slipped through the cracks of the church, maybe the cracks of society. We want to be a people that learns to value people, that learns to value our neighbors as much as God. You know, I... I was actually, I was out of town most of this week, 
and uh, it, came, it was at a conference, and it came time to fly home. And I was on a flight from New York to Jacksonville, and it was a small plane, it was a crowded plane, and I needed time to work. I actually needed time to work on this very sermon. And uh, I got on the plane, the plane's filling up, and there's an empty seat next to me. I'm on the aisle, I've got room to spread out. I've got quiet, there's nobody next to me. I've got room to get my computer out and work. It's like they're about to close the door to the plane. We're about to pull off. And these two people come come sprinting down the jetway. Hold the door, hold the door. And they finally get in. One of these sweaty people who'd been running through JFK Airport uh, found her way to my seat or to the seat next to me. And it was one of these people that it becomes clear within 10 seconds that this is not going to be a quiet flight. Um, uh, when, uh, when Bonnie Beth, that was her name, uh, sat down next to me, it was clear that she was there to talk. And so we were going to talk. And I was just so in the... I, don't, you know, don't you know that I'm a pastor? I have important work to do. If I don't work on this sermon, the flock won't be fed if I don't take care of the 99, right, please just let me work. But she started talking. She was an artist, of course. Um, and wanted to talk about her art and everything that was going on in her world and all this help that she needed. And, um, and then she says, well, what do you do? And I said, okay, here we go. This is, this is the one that ends conversations. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor. Oh, you are! I... Okay, here, let me tell you about my boyfriend. Let me tell you about our dating. Let me tell you about, I graduated college in May, and I don't know what to do with my life. Because you're an art major, right? You, you, you don't know what to do. So um, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I've got this problem with my friends, and what should I do? Hey, how do you, you know, if you're not sure you believe, how can you? And it's like, but it became a moment where it was clear. It was crystal clear, right? That there's, a, one, I wasn't going to get any work done. Um, <laughs> But it also became crystal clear that there's moments in life where there's just choices, where we have to choose between our little thing, whatever it is, in that moment it was me and my sermon, between our limited world, our, our, what we do, and valuing the, the neighbors that God places next to you, valuing the people that God brings into your life. There is never, a, you know what, just as hard as it is to leave my work and love that neighbor. It's just that hard or harder for me to leave work or family commitments to love the neighbor who actually lives next door to me. It's equally hard for me to give up a little bit of hanging out with the people I'd like to at work to pursue the, the person in the cubicle next to me that I don't get along with and that I have trouble getting to know. Right? That we're naturally drawn to what we know. We're naturally drawn to what Jesus says here, the 99. But to follow Christ means that we also seek after the lost, that we seek after the one, that we dare to bind our happiness in Christ, our entering into his celebration, into his love for our neighbors, who he says each one has wandered off. Each one is, is an object of his seeking love. But we join him in that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you who reign in your Father's glory, you who live in perfect joy and happiness at your Father's right hand, you also 
have bound up your joy, your celebration in the rescue and the seeking after us and our neighbors. All of us who share in this human condition of lostness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would seek us in the midst of our wandering, that you would find us and restore us, and that you would would help us uh, to have your heart, your seeking, loving, lavishly liberal, loving heart for our neighbors. Lord, we confess uh, our tendency to be self-absorbed, our tendency to be preoccupied, Uh, with our own stuff, our own concerns, our own narrow set of, of needs and wants. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who've been befriended by the friend of sinners, who've been found by the one who seeks and saves the lost, and that we would join our life to yours, join our mission to yours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.